to episode 426 of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Björn Gesman. Björn is probably most well-known as the coach of Patrick Lange and Kat Matthews, and he was first on the podcast back in episode 291, so I very strongly recommend listening to that episode as well if you do enjoy this one. But don't worry, you can start with this one and uh, then go back. There's no particular order necessary. But uh, I think that's more than enough chit-chat because the interview is very, very long. So uh, let's just uh, thank our sponsors and then we'll dive into the chat with Björn. Uh, so first, thank you to Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes personalize their hydration and fueling strategies for training and racing. You can use their free fuel and hydration planner to get a personalized plan for carbohydrate, sodium and fluid intake in your next event. And if you want even more help, why not book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. As a That Triathlon Show listener, you can get 15% off your first order of products by using the code TTS24 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. You can target specific aspects of your stroke, like catch and pull through and work on technique or power. And the design of the bench forces you to constantly work on core activation, which can help your body position in the water. Most importantly, you can stay consistent in your training even when you don't have time to go to the pool. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatesimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Bjorn Gesman. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, Bjorn. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for having me again. Uh, doing, doing fine, a bit busy, uh, but all good in the end. I mean, as long as it still makes fun, it, it's fine when it's sometimes a bit stressful. Um, therefore, totally okay. And honestly, highly, um, how can I say that? Highly ambitious by having a look at the triathlon season 2024, because it's going to be a fun one, I think, especially in pro triathlon. So therefore, um, awaiting it, um, and all good. Yeah, no, the season is going to be something, something extra, I think, with all the changes the t100 the olympics in the same year uh yeah it's exciting for listeners that may not know about you you have been on the podcast before of course i'll link to that in the episode description but can you give a brief introduction to to who you are and uh, yeah what your background in sports and triathlon is sure um i think i was on the podcast in 2021 you you already yeah. texted me yesterday which was fun because 2021 was an was a really nice year with uh winning the ironman in tulsa and the challenge in roth with patrick Lange, and also the first year after all that covid stuff um still uh, some of you will remember out there um yeah i'm bjorn i'm 36 years old um at an age where it does not really count how old you are, as you see. Uh, coming from Hamburg, Germany, uh, I'm a studied sports scientist and working in several parts in triathlon. For example, training a handful of pro triathletes, uh, having a uh, bigger German institute with three locations uh, called High Size which cares for age group and amateur and professional athletes in cases of coaching and uh, bike fittings and performance diagnostics and aero fittings and aero testings. 
running a big um, community coaching with the German Triathlon Magazine, which is uh, getting bigger and bigger, called Power and Pace, which is a fun project also. Actually building a wind tunnel in southern Germany um, for cyclists and triathletes only. And uh, yeah, that's mainly it. So when it comes to triathlon. Yeah, well, uh, everybody will understand uh, when you say that you're busy <laughs> hearing all of the projects that you've got going on. That yeah, that that makes sense. And the, the Wintel project is something that uh, I want to talk more about a bit later in this interview. So we'll get to that. Uh, but I want to start with I went back and listened to to our previous uh, discussion, and and one of the things we talked about was. Uh, how you've done some education within psychology. You have a background in uh, in sports science, but then you have done further education in psychology as well. And and you talked about how important that is in your coaching process. Uh, you discussed doing uh, psychological uh, profiling of athletes when you onboard them and so on. Can can you go freely talk about uh, a bit more about how you use and see psychology within your coaching process for you and for f- from the athlete side as well? And then may, I'll have some follow-up questions on that yeah um i mean when when we say that i'm into psychology i would say on a scale from one to ten i'm one to one and a half probably on the knowledge you can have in psychology so very very low um but at least one as i once realized when i uh, started especially working in pro triathlon because it's um, probably even more intensive than the normal age group coaching because you are having daily contact to them. Sometimes you're also living with them in a house on training camp or travel with them to races and, and, and everything. And then at some point I realized um, that the classic, let's call it soft skills, I had um were pretty limited when it came to whatever you need psychology for whether it's motivating taking anxieties uh, calming down activating the athlete whatsoever and then i did a little degree in mental coaching um which to be honest firstly helped me and myself to to get to know myself better than before which was also good for the whole coaching process because, I mean, again, soft skills and some kind of uh, intention you have in your daily work. And then I realized that my initial thought or idea or action was probably not the best, especially for the athlete then. And then I asked also myself in the retrospective um, why I acted this and that way and how my personality uh, was part of that one and then I realized that it wasn't probably always matching with the athlete and found good solutions what I could do better next time and then I did this degree and then um, yeah just um, still evolving and uh, having brief discussions with a now also friend of mine who is a psychologist and who I do a lot of also work together with so every time uh, an athlete has a let's say challenge which i can't handle psychology wise then i recommend them to meet him and then uh, he's doing the real psychology work let's say so whenever you have a trauma or something then i'm definitely not the right one that's why i'm saying on a scale from one to ten somewhere between one and one and a half hopefully um 
but uh, due to that, you have a lot of discussions and uh, yeah, uh, about the whole psychology linked to an athlete, to the athlete's personality. And then you learn a lot. We also sometimes do a little podcast. Sorry, it's in German. Uh, where we are discussing several tools you have, for example, um, mental coaching tools. And um, yeah, in the end, that helped me a lot to better understand myself, better understand the athlete and understanding and acting in a way where hopefully it's in total better for especially the development of the athlete in certain situations. So can you give an example of a scenario, a situation that you may have been in before doing any of this education when you were maybe at zero on the scale? And what what did you do then that you would now do a better job now that you have a bit more understanding? I think um, there were, and it's always like every time in life, it's always the bad situations when you realize you're not super well equipped with tools to get out of a conflict situation, let's say. Um, and therefore, it 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 have been conflict situations where I did not understand why this challenge is a big problem for the athlete. And I couldn't see the problem on myself. So we had a disconnection in there. The athlete had a problem and I couldn't understand why the athlete had a problem. And then if that's a process lasting for hours or days and you do not have the chance to really get out of it just because of understanding problems first. So not like ongoing discussions, finding solutions for better understandings and everything. Then like, again, every day in life, it crashes at some point and there's minimum uh, an argumentation or a fight, however you call it. And that led myself and the athletes sometimes to situations where, um, yeah, you, you, you did not have any uh, uh, outcomes which were really, really nice to have. And therefore, I thought that it definitely makes sense to not see the problem just on the side of the athlete and think myself, well, it's her or his problem. I don't see it. And therefore... Uh, I must be right or wrong, um, but to better understand why it's a problem for th for the athlete, what he or her needs in this situation, probably also not only to directly close that case or get rid of the problem, but to open him or herself to have a discussion about it or a talk about it so that I can better understand why there is a problem with this and that. and. Yeah, like, again, always conflict situations, not that there were much of it, but one to really, uh, yeah, precise, uh, not like shocking, but really um, uh, direction leading conflicts, which led to a split up, for example, in the athletes and coaches relationship. And therefore, I thought if I want to um, work in professional triathlon, then I'll I'll have to dig deeper into the understanding of personalities and why they are different to me and how we can get better on the same page of understanding. So it's, it's a lot of it. One of the key things is for you to understand different personality types and be able to put yourself in their shoes, basically. Yeah. And then 
you'll have daily situations where you'll always think of the, let's say, meter level um, whenever it comes to whatever motivation ahead of a race, calming down five, six, seven days ahead of a race, motivating for training, activating for the race, preparing for certain race situations. I mean, like, you know that better than me, but a long distance triathlon race is a very, very long race. And you'll go through every feeling you can have from probably a bit of anxiety at the beginning of the of the race then getting some self-confidence because you whatever had a good swim then again getting in trouble because you lost a rear wheel uh, and a group probably and so on and so on and then uh, with all these mental coaching uh, degrees and discussions I uh, often thought that now I have a better understanding of how the athlete probably feels and how I can interrupt, not like interrupt, but how I can help the athletes even in the race because we see quite often uh, also in the race and you still have the chance to say at least a sentence or two and probably that helps. And before that, or so that it can help, you need to know a little bit more about the personality and understand it better than I did it before, let's say. Mm. Uh, can can you give uh, maybe one piece of advice for a certain common uh, psychological situation that athletes uh, might struggle with? So this might be some athletes are more uh, anxious and they might struggle with that, whether it's in racing or training. Others maybe have struggle with motivation. So you can choose whatever scenario, whatever issue it is. But but if you you choose the the issue and then one tip for how athletes can maybe learn to improve how they're they're handling those issues uh impatience and acceptance of that so let's take the typical example where every triathlete uh, uh can really uh, call himself one who already had that problem like being ill or having an injury and I bet that every triathlete is in some case impatient with that. So nobody says, well, I got a cold. I'm happy that I do not have to exercise for the next two weeks. And sure, I wait until I'll be healthy again. And then even three days more to be 100% safe. And then I start training again. This is something I never heard in my entire life. So um, and therefore, this impatience is sometimes a thing that is It's definitely there. And the question then is how strong it will be. Is it something where you at some point can accept that you are ill and you know you'll have to wait and you probably also trust your coach's advice to not train in the next five days? Or is it something, and you're fine with it, or is it something that really impacts your mood to being very, very bad and ruins your days And leads then not only to being ill, but also to being whatever, minimum grumpy, to sad, probably developing an anxiety, thinking about the next weeks of training or probably the race, which is coming up in three weeks and everything. And then what I um, often uh, touched was the case of acceptance to say, well, sure, you can... Uh, be grumpy now that you are ill and you can be it in every second you are ill and then it lasts for minimum three to five days 
or you can try to accept the situation that you are ill, probably concentrate on, on other stuff, probably enjoying things you could also do when you are ill. You can have good food, you can probably drink a good glass of red wine whatsoever, and you won't make the illness worse, one glass, not, not probably more than one. Um, and then you can at least solve the, the mood a little bit um, due to the acceptance that you are ill now. And that is often the, the I mean, a discussion you're having, not like weekly, because the, the, the handful of pro athletes isn't, isn't ill or sick or injured weekly. But whenever it's there, then it's always, in my opinion, a good tool also for, especially for the coach, to give the athlete the confidence that it's totally fine to be ill now and just i think it's more due to my personality than also give a rational view on it why it is okay to be ill because let's say your next race is i don't know end of april let's take the actual time point and we're having mid of february and you're ill for five days so it won't ruin your whole preparation leading up to the race and then um from a rational perspective pointing out and giving the overview about how many training she or or uh, he already got into the books how many weeks of training there still are before heading to the race and therefore it's fine to have five days of whatever being sick for example and developing an acceptance which leads to a mood way more relaxed and satisfied than normally and then in my opinion helps a lot to prevent also other is issues so like bigger anxieties thinking about the next race preparation for example which then definitely will develop even more and yeah and and i think everyone can compare to being somehow impatient really sick of being ill or injured and then sometimes also starting too early and that's the best example for not having accepted the situation that it will last for a week starting too early and developing some kind of sickness which then lasts way longer than before because you've been impatient and did not accept the situation and then probably are ill for another like two three four weeks and made it even worse than it was before yeah that's a, a great and very relatable example that i think yeah we all have definitely been in that situation uh, another topic that i wanted to to revisit a bit is uh running economy which uh we discussed last time so uh, just to remind the listeners if they have listened to that interview but maybe don't remember so much is that we talked about uh do, adding things like plyometrics strength training and and also one thing that you mentioned was that you uh, quite rarely i mean you, you don't do a lot of purely easy runs but you do runs that have a little less sprinkles of some moderate intensity perhaps and uh, to basically work on on economy at, in with a slightly the running form of slightly faster a uh, faster running not nothing crazy but uh but adding those sprinkles into a lot of the normal runs so can you discuss this in more detail is this still how you approach improving running because since we talked uh patrick had then just ran 236 something in tulsa and you said that you weren't sure if it's possible to run 235 and 234 now he's done a couple of 230 
Ironman marathons. So so clearly things have continued to to work well. Uh, but yeah, is this still the, the approach? Have anything has anything changed, or what can you add about running and running economy? It's fun that you wrote that down. Yes, and I read that yesterday, and then and, and had to smile because um, when I just. <laughs> anecdote uh, when i uh, started working with patrick that was in 2019 so ne shortly before covid hit um and he had his uh, really bad kona race when he needed to stop in Kwai high and uh, we started working like i don't know like four weeks after something and then i got asked pretty often by the german media especially also international media uh, something like um Uh, well, you can't uh, develop his run anymore because he's already run a 239 something uh, like he had in Kona, for example, twice. Um, but how do you want to develop his bike, right? And I was like, well, why can't I develop his running anymore? Because I mean, uh, I do not know any pro athlete who would go into a coaching or training saying that he does swim, bike and run now And two of the disciplines, he trains just to get the state back again he had before. So everyone wants to develop something and everyone wants to develop every discipline. And I do not know anyone who doesn't want. And greetings to all the media people uh, asking that. It's now 10 minutes less. So probably not 10. It's like nine, nine minutes something, but it will be 10 minutes less in 2024. <laughs> So just a statement. So we, I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure Patrick will break the 230 barrier and run 229 this season. Um, therefore, fun, fun anecdote about how you can develop running performances even if you're already going good. Um, but then, to be honest, I needed to smile because I thought uh, doing the Tulsa race was already a great run performance, and I, for myself, thought, well. It's already like three minutes on a marathon distance, um, winning then that race. And I was pretty satisfied with that one. And then he developed even more and even more and even more, uh, running Challenge Roth, I think, in that, in the same year in September when it was, uh, delayed due to COVID. And then the world championships in 2021 got postponed into St. George in May. And then we spontaneously, like with, maximum 10 days in advance we decided to to race uh roth and he won it and i think that was one of the first times he already ran 235 more or less i'm not 100 sure and then the year after israel with 230 um so yeah um i mean when it comes to running economy uh and i hope that's the same i said last time when we have we're having the podcast is running economy is probably the biggest black box we have in training so sure you can get out papers showing you what helps to develop your running economy that's pretty easy um, but even if you look at the papers the scientific ones you'll see tons of stuff you can do to increase or make your running economy better so therefore decrease let's define running economy the oxygen you need per let's say kilometer uh, per hour or minutes per uh, kilometer, for example, depending on how, how you want to have the unit for speed. But you need less oxygen and therefore you are more uh, economic uh, when it comes to running economy. And 
If you take the tools you can use for increasing your running economy, then it lasts from, let's say, running volume, running intensity. Uh, then you are shortly make your way to uh, strength training, plyometrics, and so on and so on. So tons of tools you can use and all totally different to the other. And um, I think the main thing is, just for me, that um, if you want to train running economy, at first you need to know how the running economy already is, because it's not only when it comes to training a slightly black box, but also when it comes to testing a little bit of a black box, because it's nothing you can easily test on the outside, for example. So if you want to know your threshold on your bike, I mean, take a power meter, do a 20 minutes test, and then you'll have halfway your FTP, whatever that means. But if your FTP increases by 10% in three months, then you know, yeah, it's better, perfect. And your endurance capacity or uh, performance has increased, and then it's fine. But there's no testing method on the outside where you could say, well, I'm running a 5K run all out, and then training my running economy uh, with all the tools I named you. And then you'll run the 5Ks again in two or three months and you see you're two minutes faster, but you do not have a single clue whether it's your increased VO2 max, which led to uh, your stronger performance. If there's any changes in your running economy, how probably your anaerobic metabolism has e uh, developed throughout the time. And therefore it still stays within this black box, and even if you would have known that it was running economy which got better, then you probably still do not have a clue if it was the running volume, the intensity, the plyometrics, or the max strength training you, you added on Tuesdays and Thursdays in your training plan, for example, because you still don't have a clue which one worked best. And therefore, running economy is a perfect example for uh, testing and then what we all do in training, trial and error, and then test again. And then you see um, uh, what really helped to increase your running economy. And uh, is it probably a consistency into running kilometers per week? Is it a, a certain intensity you try out in training? Or did you, after you tried all of this and probably it didn't even work to develop the running economy, added max strength training or added plyometrics? And um, we can now have hours and hours of discussions about what I think could help in running economy. And honestly, the answer will always be that it comes down to the individual to decide whether plyometrics is a thing, yes or no, whether... I don't know, running kilometers up to 80 or 100 or 120 kilometers per week is a thing, yes or no. And I can say, for example, let's take Patrick, because we were talking about, it's neither plyometric, it's not running volume, because, I mean, if you, if I would say how many kilometers Patrick is running per week, I think it's somehow impossible to understand why with that small amount of kilometers you can have that outcome. Um, but what I know is working for him is that you have tons of just quality kilometers, well-fueled, let's say, very fine-defined intensities, uh, and then a lot of 
stuff going on next to running itself. So doing a lot of athletic training, stability work, visiting your physiotherapist twice a week, and this and that and this and that. And then, I mean, that's not the only thing, but then it comes down in the race itself. So if you want a 230 marathon, you can have, you can have whatever running economy you want. If, uh, for example, your carbohydrate oxidation is not going well on your bike ride, then it doesn't work to run a fast marathon. So we could extend it not only from discussing running economy and training, but also to how to race long-distance triathlon races to still be able to run a 230 marathon. So, I mean, I'll have time. <laughs> so we can, we can we can go through. One, two. Let's, ta- let's start with the volume side. So at least last time, I think you mentioned that Patrick ran 50 to 60 kilometers on average yeah. per week yeah. into Tulsa. Is that the same, similar? No, absolutely the same. And um, so I don't know if it's like this year in average uh, 53 uh, or 55 or something, um, but it will be around that. And um, I mean, l- let's do an add-on. We could also discuss what a long run, for example, is. I mean, there are tons of different definitions about a long run in triathlon training, for example. And to add that one, for example, I don't know how many two-hour runs Patrick has done so far. We could probably ask him in the last four years, but I bet maybe four, five, and there won't be any in preparation to the 2024 season, I think, probably one, but only whenever it's really a thing about having fun, doing something really special on a training camp, me joining on a bike, having the fuel with me and everything. So it's more for the fun part to, uh, yeah, let's say really... uh, hop on this or over the that that barrier of running longer than one and a half hours but but the typical uh long run in our definition or in my definition is less up to one and a half hours and then it'd still be enough and when you when we talk about uh run volume i mean what we have to see is the not the the volume we think in average is the what volume uh we ran but the volume you can really be 100% sure of that that's your average over the whole preparation for the upcoming season, for example. So many people are telling me that they are running like 80 to 100 kilometers per week. And if I ask how often they do that, then, and no offense, but often to the next injury, and then they are ill again or injured again, and then they do it again and do it for three weeks, and then there's still a break because probably of any issues they have, and that doesn't make sense. And if I say Patrick is running 50 to 60 Ks per week, then you can take for granted that I can count the days when he really was injured due to any kind of uh, overstressing injuries, not like crashing and breaking his collarbone, for example. But if we really say how often he's gone over that sharp line of uh, nuts uh, where he was not able to stand the, the training stress anymore, I don't know, like three days, four days or something, when, when he really could not train what I put on the menu that day. And that's it. So, and you can't handle, for example, COVID or you can't handle crashes or any illnesses you get by getting infected of other persons, for example. But if you see really the self-developed uh, illnesses where it's 
let's say your I don't want to say fault, but where it's where you probably overdone it, then you can be a hundred percent sure that his consistency in training is extremely high, and and therefore fifty to sixty kilometers is probably enough if you put enough quality into it to really develop that run performance. Yeah, yeah, it's still it's three three thousand kilometers, two thousand five hundred, three thousand kilometers in a year if you do it fifty weeks of the year. So, That's so you can also go and look at your yearly kilometers, and it's it's easy to do maybe eighty kilometers for one or two months, but but to achieve those higher numbers for a year is more maybe not more difficult, but it's um, yeah, that's more it's more important. But is is this something that you think that for most of your athlete athletes that it's not that you're lower on running volume than let's say people think than than would be i don't i don't want to say typical but but is there any of your athletes that you have um, significantly higher run volume with because that just seems to work well for them or or is it very individual i think in the end it's always risk versus reward so what is really what is the outcome if you, and we're not talking about like 50 compared to let's say 65 case, because I mean, sure, there's a difference, but there would still be something where I would guess that 65 is still below what you said, like typical, what, what pros are running in triathlon. But the question always is, I mean, what's your risk of taking 80 to 100 kilometers per week and what's your reward? And in the end, if you are a... And now we do it the hard way, probably. But if you're competing in pro triathlon and you want to be somewhere near the world class level and you're running 80 to 100 Ks per week, but you're not able to uh, guarantee a run uh, below, let's say, the three hour, 10 minutes mark uh, on your Ironman distance, then probably ask yourself if the risk of running 100 Ks uh, per week is worth the reward or the outcome of being, I don't want to say slow, but not one of the faster runners. And probably then you can decide if running 20 to 30 Ks less, let's say, and then adding instead whatever you want, what could help you to improve your running performance is probably more worth than the running kilometers itself. So, why aren't we talking about then about the strength training, the plyometrics, the stability work, the athletic training, this and that, that could probably help you or the quality work in running technique if you want to, this and that. And good thing in triathlon is you're always able to measure it and then trial and error again and measure it again and see if it works, yes or no. And that's where I think you do not have an... There's no, I don't want to say idea behind running 100 or 120 Ks per week, but only if your outcome is that you definitely belong to the fastest runners in the field. If that isn't your outcome, I don't see a sense in there. And if you need 120 K to run three hours and 10 on your ma marathon, I don't know if, if, if it's really worth then, because what is your potential in development? I mean, what do you want to do? I'm talking about female athletes, actually. Like, uh, I was thinking about three hour and 10 minutes in female athletes. So it wouldn't be something where you could do anything in the male field. Um, but if you uh, really want to develop your performance and come probably closer to the three hour mark, I mean, what are your choices you'll have? You can't uh, 
increase your running kilometers from 100 to 140 or 50 or 160 k's per week that doesn't work and then um yeah honestly often thinking about risk and reward and i'm when it comes to running kilometers per week for or let's say running volume then it's one of the things that really exponential higher your risk in getting injured and then you'll have to really have a close look on how many kilometers you really want to run per week and how many kilometers you really can stand in cases of consistency over the whole season. It's not a problem in cycling kilometers. I mean, if you're riding 25 or 28 or 30 uh, hours per week, we would say, yeah, fuel yourself well. It's going to be a long day in the saddle. Sure, you can ride for six or seven hours a day instead of five, but I mean, I don't see a injury risk in there, um, but in, in 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 running, it's completely different, and the risk is getting exponential higher. And therefore, you really have to have a close look on 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 running volume per per week and the risk versus reward relationship. Let's get to the intensity side of things then. So, so can you explain how you use an intensity? Here is maybe we're we're not necessarily even talking like anything super intense maybe it's slower than ironman pace which is still obviously fast for someone like patrick especially but um but anything that is faster than just an easy easy jog how do you work that into the weekly schedule yeah um let's do it in a very simple way let's say you have a threshold pace for your running performance and then i mainly use three different kinds of intensities which is like the normal endurance-based intensity let's say endurance-based one <clears throat> and then you have endurance-based two which is still definitely below your threshold which is up to let's say 85 to 95 percent somehow there um, of your threshold pace and then you'll have everything around your threshold let's say 95 to whatever 105 percent of your of your threshold pace for example and these are the three main intensities I'm using in training. And then you can have a lot of variety how you want to use it. For sure, an endurance-based one run is different if it lasts for one hour or for two hours, or if it's a brick run, yes or no, or if it's on your whatever fifth or th uh, sixth day of your training block or on your first day of your training block. Um, and these are the three main intensities very rare i would say it becomes even more intensive and we would really talk about high intensive uh, training but then the question is again what is risk versus reward because running whatever 200 meter intervals 400 meter intervals i mean great fun in training absolutely good but I do not really very often see the possibility within a 30 or 35 hour week of training to be 100% confident that I can now write down, let's say 10, 15 times 400 meter intervals and still be sure that the athlete can stand this, let's say stress, whatever that means, whether it's training stress or a biomechanical stress or whatsoever uh, so we just call it stress and therefore it does not really have to happen pretty often um, especially in combination with the other intensities you have in swimming and biking for sure uh, and then athletic training which is 
I'll always will name it today because I think triathlon has minimum four disciplines uh, in training. And therefore, these three main intensities, and also pretty rare is just the only endurance-based one run. So there's nearly always intensity in there, which is uh, not only your endurance-based intensity, but minimum somewhere around, let's say, 80% of your threshold or threshold training, for example, for, let's say, three, four, five times, uh, 800 meters, 1,000 meters, whatever you want, 1,500 meters, depending on which state of the season you are, how you want to develop your VO2 max in cases of intensity training, for example. Um, yeah, and this and that. And, and therefore, these three intensities packed in an, a schedule where you can say that there are maximum five runs per week. And that's really a lot. I normally only use four. And then it's always about the context of training and also about run training so context for me means um what's the idea behind this run so what is your goal for that one why are you doing it and then the context is what stuff you are doing around same example if you're having an intensive three and a half hour ride before your run in the afternoon the run definitely will have a different idea than running it isolated after breakfast, for example. So not like a different idea. It's not like there's a 100% change in the idea behind, but the adaptation you'll have from it, the stress you're producing, let's say, uh, and then probably the outcome will definitely be different. And um, yeah, therefore, you'll always have to take into account how the context looks like. Let's do again the long run. I don't care for the duration of a single run if you're not telling me the context of your run block, for example. You can run Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for, let's say, every day, one and a half hours, and do it on Friday pretty intensive with a lot of threshold intervals, running it on Saturday with, let's say, four times 15 minutes in endurance base two zone, and then running your long run on Sunday, which is only one and a half hours long. But in that context of these two workouts, run workouts you had on Friday and Saturday, your run on Sunday will have a completely different training stress, training outcome, adaptation and everything. And that's what, in my opinion, we'll have to consider if we are discussing, for example, the long run, whatever that is, I don't, I don't really see a sense in discussing the duration of a single run. Can you explain the uh, endurance base two uh, intensity in terms of physiology or performance markers? Is it like your Ironman race pace, your LT one, or or where where is it roughly? More or less, yeah. And there's there's still. I mean, I'm a fan of bigger ranges uh, for these training zones. Like I said, if we are talking about, I don't know how exactly I have it on the training platform, but I would guess something like 83 to 95, for example, percentage. And I mean, it's a completely different uh, intensity if we talk about 83% of your three-minute uh, per kilometer pace on your threshold or if it's like 94% or 95%. So therefore, there's already a different... A difference in a single training zone and then it's a lot about um education and trust and the the let's say the talks behind that your athlete is still able to decide on his own 
when he feels a little bit more fatigue, that he can also run at 85% of that training zone and he's still going well. And he still uh, is going for the goal you set for him probably or for her. Um, and that at first, I mean, the variety is pretty big. And then I would guess, that's why I'm doing it, that a higher intensity always brings a higher VO2 you'll need for it with it. So therefore, there will be adaptations in your VO2 max. And if it's race pace or not, I mean, on the first hand, I do not really care. I'm just caring about the physiological response uh, of that training workout, probably the training context, the week, the block, the whatever, whole preparation over months, whatever you want. And then the aim is uh, to build a physiolo uh, physiological profile where you can say now the athlete is able to, or Yeah, is at the at at the peak of his performance capacity, let's say. And what you need for this is, for example, in running, a good running economy, a high VO2 max, and probably a low anaerobic system. So, and then the endurance base two, probably we can call it zone two. And now you ha you'll have more clicks on your podcast because we're used a trendy tra <laughs> trendy training zone. Um, which I I'm still impressed that we can use a training zone uh, as an idea of a training method, for example, which I do not get. For me, training zones are just a thing which I use to better describe in which intensity they should run. But the idea behind is not like running in zone two, but hiring your VO2 max and therefore spend whatever, 20 to 30% of your time in zone two, for example. But anyway, um, so it's a thing where I think the development of, for example, your running economy is going really well. You'll spend a lot of time of your running 50, 60Ks per week with a really good intensity, not too low, not too high. You can stand it for quite a long time without being afraid of risking any injuries you normally won't get injured in a let's say zone two run for example or partly zone two run um yeah and then um hopefully the athlete develops uh physiologically in the way you want him to develop and then it works but honestly we could also say or any criticism is more than welcome saying that you just need half of these zone two runs and could add more threshold intervals and i would still say the same about that sure, the development of your VO2 max is probably even better when you do more threshold runs. But then again, it's a risk versus reward thing. How often can you do threshold runs? How well recovered do you need to be for it? What ride did you do before? What swim did you do before? What do, have you planned for the rest of the day? So yeah, pretty, pretty in the end, always individual. So it, it's not about um, yeah those specific any specific adaptations to those intensities, but it's more about finding a, a right balance of of load. You can do more work in uh, the endurance uh, base two versus threshold, but but um, yeah, you you want a bit of both, but finding finding the right balance so that you you're not taking too much risk, I guess. Yeah, and it if we are talking about the familiarization in that in or at that intensity i mean what we need to say is whenever we do running economy testings 
then it's pretty clear that the time you spend at that intensity will definitely help. Let's take the typical example, the classic marathon runner. I don't know if it's still like that today, but 10, 15, 20 years ago, the typical marathon runner spent his whole time in his comfort zone while training. So they didn't do any 200-meter intervals, 400-meter intervals whatsoever, but just set on running volume, feel-good intensity, but not a huge variety of intensities and probably not even caring for different type of training zones, but just going out for a run. Perfect. The outcome when it comes to running economy was pretty often that their running economy at in their comfort zone, let's say, is great. So 100% really good, and they are more than economical at that intensity. But as uh, as far they are going slightly more intensive, probably trying to run at their threshold, you could directly see how running economy totally crashed down, and they were really having, I don't want to be too harsh, but shitty running economies compared to their running economy, which was great right, while running their, in their comfort zone. Reason for that, I mean, if we take all the neuromuscular things, the coordination you'll have while running that intensity or this intensity, uh, the whole probably economical uh, work your respiratory system is doing at that intensity, your capability of uh, the clearance of lactate while running at uh, threshold intensity, for example, all of that definitely will be th something which needs time spent in that th zone to really do it good. You can't do plyometrics uh, and then hope for having a good running economy at threshold intensity without running at threshold intensity. You'll need to do them all, let's say. And therefore, I guess a side effect from running in, let's say, zone two again, um, is that it comes really close to whatever intensity you want to have in a race, whether it's lower zone two intensity and we talk about Ironman pace, whether it's a little bit uh, the probably the upper range of zone two and you're running at 70.3 intensity, for example. And that will definitely be a thing which can help, but it's not the main goal of, of, of running there. Mm. And uh, so just a final point on this topic about the intensity distribution, then if we take the example of Patrick around 55 kilometers a week, how many kilometers, roughly speaking, would be uh, zone two and how many would be threshold and how many would be just uh, endurance? In, you mean in one? percentage? Uh, kilometers, if we know that he's running about 55 kilometers, so would he be doing Harley 15 low. kilometers yeah. threshold, 20, uh, zone two, 25, zone two? So let's say... Taking the typical actual training week, and I can probably open it uh, <laughs> next to talking about it, but um, I would say if we just take the percentages or the kilometers, then I'm not 100% sure if it really paints the right picture of the idea behind. If we take just four runs, let's say, and if we start with giving these runs main goals, yeah, then minimum one of these runs actually is a run where you have a certain amount of threshold intervals in it. Like, let's say, four times a thousand meters at three minutes pace, for example. And then we could say that 25% of all runs 
are having the aim of hiring his VO2 max, for example, and therefore partly running a threshold. If we would see the whole run, I mean, then it was a one and a half hour run. He did like 23Ks and ran 4Ks at threshold, 19Ks just endurance based. I mean, that's already like, what is it like? Uh, probably 20% in that run, 15% in that run where he was running at threshold pace compared to the whole week. It's, I don't know, 5%, 4, 3, uh, slightly nothing. And therefore, I'm saying that probably the main goal of the of the run itself can help out. I mean, sure, we can also say that the rest of that run is probably not with the main goal of hiring his VO2 max because it's just an endurance-based run. But if we take the run itself, then we can say also one and a half hours of running will help your VO2 max because it is running volume, running intensity, and therefore you'll need VO2 to also run at his like easy pace at 350, for example. It's still a high amount of VO2 you'll need also for the rest beside the threshold intervals. Um, and then the question would be, what more can we do in one run to very specifically work on his VO2 max? And then I think... I mean, he did that now three, four times. Uh, four times a thousand meters is already minimum good when it comes to my range of planning it. So I would never write down eight times 2,000 meters, let's say. But um, I think the risk of the workout is still totally fine. His feedback is going well. Therefore, we will increase it up to six times, whatever, eight times, probably a thousand meters, and then it's fine. And then, but but that's it. It won't be even longer because I think then we are losing the risk versus reward game. And therefore, one uh, run threshold intervals, minimum two of it uh, picked with, whatever we'll have in zone two, whether it's like three times eight minutes, four times 12 minutes, for example, then also probably a variety in there. I love playing in these zones, uh, like writing down, run the first 10Ks in the middle, then the next, uh, sorry, 10 minutes in the middle, then the next 10 minutes at the upper range, and then the next 10 minutes, for example, at the lower range, um, and then a single run, which is just the typical endurance-based run without any intensities. Sometimes a little bit of acceleration in there probably if you want to. So if you want to bring the athlete out of this comfort zone of probably also risking that he's too much into losing the concentration and the neuromuscular activation and everything, you can add like 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 little run uh, accelerations up to like six to eight seconds, for example, twice three times four times within a run but always be careful i mean an acceleration or somehow a sprint or something is always again the risk versus reward question that's nothing i would do at the end of a five or six day training block probably where you already are in our whatever 34 of your week then it could probably be a bit too much mm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. that. That makes sense and gives good context. And uh, then the final part, uh, so the plyometrics and athletics training, uh, just speak, speaking generally, uh, how, yeah, what what things have you, 
are you using that that you think works well in general and then maybe some specifics what have you found for patrick that that works well for him and does not work well for him i'm in the pretty luxury situation to be honest um because i know the times before when i wasn't um that all of them have their physiotherapist next to them so and then it's always a close communication between the physiotherapist uh, probably also the nutritionist whatever they have already um and then you can really make it individual about disbalances potentials here potentials there and then it's about let's say activating your glutes for your run for example working on your on your core for not only running economy but also for uh, probably your stable uh, bike position you'll have on your tt bike for example and this and that and now it's tons of things you can you can add in training um just as as an overview i would say that four times an hour four times up to one and a half hours minimum is planned for whatever we call athletic training now but really training not like the hour massage at your physiotherapist that's extra but really like let's say four hours which would mean probably around 15% of your total training time is spent doing whatever you can call athletic training. Sometimes it's strength training and they do maximum strength training with their physiotherapist and whatever, using the bench press or doing squats or whatsoever. Um, and then we won't call it athletic training. That's why I said it in in like yeah that's my overall uh definition of let's say off bike training is what we would call it in cycling whatever you do which is not on your bike and therefore when i say athletic training it would mean whatever you do which is not swim bike and run and um yeah and therefore it needs to have a proper uh, priority in your training because i mean if you take just your upper core as an example you'll find tons of reasons why it helps you for swimming, for biking, and for running. And therefore, you train, whenever you train your core, you're training swim, bike, and run, but just from a different point of view. And therefore, it totally makes sense to do it. And it's the same for running economy. Let's do the example again, just to link it. Um, if you train your core, it can help your initial running economy to get better because you're not, not losing too much energy for your run just to run your pace due to your pretty weak upper core. And if you have a weak core, then we can halfway imagine if it's already weak and you can test that it impacts your running economy. I mean, what potentially could happen after a 180k ride where your weak core is sitting in arrow position which, with a pretty close hip angle, and then you'll have to open it up and stand there and run totally straight with a potentially good running economy. That won't happen. Your running economy will get worse and worse with every biking hour and with every kilometer in the run, and in the end, you're probably 10 centimeters smaller than you've been at the start line. So therefore, that doesn't make sense. And therefore, there has to be a priority to also train that one. What what do you do if you're not in the luxurious situation of the athletes ah. working with their own physiotherapist? What and is that's why um, 
Absolutely. And that's why I'm saying it. And I, I know that from, from older times, training like whatever, 30, 40, 50 age group athletes. And then at least, I mean, there were times when, so what I used, it's like 10 years, 15 years ago. So it wasn't like Instagram and watching Instagram videos about TRX videos or something wasn't a big thing. Because at least I didn't have Instagram. I don't know when it came up, to be honest. But um, what I used at the beginning was every core stuff, for example, you could get from the Mark Verstegen group. There was the first things where you could say, buy yourself this book, take workout number, whatever, two, five, and seven. And I'll put on your training plan that you please do it every Monday and Wednesday and Friday afternoon, for example. And then there was at least a plan, a very general one, surely not having an eye on the way they were doing it, because I couldn't stand next to them, not having an idea if it really helps with any disbalances, for example, whatever, in their hip. And therefore, I mean, sure, in the end, there has to be a general way. And I'm, for example, a big fan of, of TRX bands. So th in my opinion, they really can help you. You can travel with them. Also, as an age group athlete, you do not have an excuse if there's no gym in your hotel while you're on your business trip or whatsoever. And then they are, I mean, now it's way easier. You can Google it. You can go on Instagram and do... uh Uh, stuff that makes sense on Instagram, not like just scrolling, but I mean, finding yourself some good TRX workouts, for example, you could do that strengthen your upper body. And in the end, don't make it too complicated. Even if you're not 100% sure if it really helps your disbalances, like I said it now, and even if you can't say you're in a luxury situation, it always makes sense to spend three times 20 minutes with your TRX or doing core performance workouts or this and that. And I mean, then in the end, I would say it also makes sense to visit a physiotherapist regularly because he's the one or she's the one who can tell you where your potential disbalances are and then you can adapt it or have a chat with your coach saying well whatever my right hip is stiffer than my left one for example and then you can still decide if you want to adapt your program for example but i mean first thing it should have an a, a higher priority in your in your total training and then i mean core training Strength training, for example, is a thing I wouldn't recommend for everyone. You, If you really want to have some good squats, even if it's, especially when it's like maximum strength training, then you'll have to be really good educated in doing squats. You'll have to make your way up to the point where you could really say, now I'm using the big weights, for example. And then normally there has to be someone around watching you and correcting your your movements and uh, this is something i would never recommend for everyone especially because i do not uh, see the risk versus reward uh, approach in there maximum strength training won't make you that faster that it's really worth risking any injuries by doing it wrong for example and therefore core trx You could also do yoga, for example. If 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 yoga is a thing for you and you like to do it, do it three times a week, and then it's perfect. So so le let's say we have you have an age grouper. You can't see them. They don't necessarily have a physiotherapist that they go to. You can choose between these four things: so core, including TRX and stuff, uh, plyometrics, 
uh, weight training, so um, yeah, heavy weights, maximum strength work, and number four, mobility, including things like yoga. How would you rank them? What would be the the most important to least important uh, of those four? Uh, one is number one. Uh, so the the core four yeah. four the mobility is number two, and forget the rest. <laughs> okay, forget we, we my metrics. General now. Yep. So, yep. So um, really, don't. I mean, the problem in triathlon is you can do everything way more complicated than it is. And if we would have all three, uh, all four, sorry, then we would by now also have a discussion about when to implement strength training into your training rhythm. Because it's not a thing where you can say you can do it on every day, no matter if you train five hours before on that day or not, which you can definitely do for core training and mobility. So no problem at all. But strength training needs to be really a massive, having a massive priority into thinking about how your training schedule will look like. And therefore, I wouldn't make it too complicated. I would definitely pick core training at first, mobility second, so that you do not get one of these very stiff people due to your cyclic uh, way of training swim, bike and running. Uh, And then that's it. And then do it, you can combine it, you can have an hour where you can do 45 minutes of core training and 15 minutes of mobility, for example, or a bit of yoga work. And if you then do it like, depending on the duration of one single workout, but two to four times a week, perfect. You can also do it like four times 20 minutes. And it's definitely lots better than doing nothing. Mm. Yeah, perfect. So we're an hour into the interview and we have covered two questions. Uh, I would like to skip some of them probably. We only had like 12 or something. So um, (laughs) it's going to be a long one. Yes, it's going to be a long one. Uh, I will ask the next one and then maybe start skipping some. But in general terms, now we have discussed a lot about how to distribute the intensity in running. Uh, so we covered that. What about swimming and cycling? Can you can you discuss through your philosophy on how to distribute volume and intensity in swimming and cycling in a triathlon context? Um, by the way, we can also do a second episode if you want to. So we do not need to skip the very good questions from your followers, for example, um, just to say that. Um, honestly, I do only very rare care for distributions of whether it's volume or intensity especially not by uh, comparing the three disciplines so if you if you would ask me how many hours patrick is spending per week let's say uh, with swim bike and run then i would really need to think about it because i can't say it just on purpose um but when I'm sitting there, like like we all do, uh, writing a training plan, then they are then there are some fixed points in the plan where I think this has to be a mandatory part of a triathlon professional triathlete's training plan. Like for example, beginning with the most important one, a rest day. Yeah, so there has to be a rest day in there where I can be sure that from that day on, he's way better recovered. So I can put a lot more what we would call quality into training than I could before. And when I talk about quality, I mean, whatever you have, strength, endurance training, threshold sessions, zone two, 
uh, and so on and so on. So therefore, recovery day is always mandatory, which could mean that you still do an hour of easy riding, like an active recovery ride, for example. You could also go swimming for half an hour just for like 2Ks or 2.5Ks or something. But uh, the definition of a recovery day is that in the morning of the day after, you feel way better than on the morning of your recovery day. Okay, And whatever you need in between that helps you to feel better on the next day is great. You can do nothing. You can go for an active recovery ride or you can go for an easy swim and therefore you'll more or less decide what, what feels better for you. So and then um, mandatory is also that there is a certain volume in there in all three disciplines, which would mean for swimming, for example, that you'll need to have four to five workouts minimum that should be in your plan four is fine if it if there's a bit of traveling here and there or if there's a training week and then the whatever the recovery week starts right on thursday and therefore in addition to that it's not five uh, swimming sessions per week but normally i would say five is the number that has to be in your plan. And then if we take five swimming sessions and we do it a little bit more general now, then, I mean, if you just take the volume of a single workout, it starts at, let's say, 4Ks, for example, somewhere near there. It does not really make sense to hop into the water for 3Ks. So therefore, it's like four to probably five and a half, the really long ones. Let's say, whatever, four and a half in average, multiplied with five so we talk about 20 to 25 kilometers of swimming per week just the volume if you then see the intensity in there i mean again a whole big variety of from threshold to high intensity from going long in endurance based zone one for example and all of that um and then for biking, it's more or less the same way of acting. Like you having the training plan, you already have a rest day and five days where you are swimming in there. And sure, you're, you won't count the ride on rest day as a training ride, let's say. But then, yeah, depending on whether there is a, a second potential rest day in there, if not, yeah, then it's like six days of riding normally. Um, cause I, like the bike part of the training plan pretty much because it can still help to make even the fourth or fifth day in a row better than you had it before. Let's do an example. If you have three sessions in a row, like training on, we do the normal week, Monday's uh, rest day, let's say. And if you have an intensive or halfway intensive session on tuesday i'm not a big fan of the intensive ones right after the rest day because they will never feel great yeah it's like the rest day at the tour de france uh you won't have a great stage right after the rest day if you are not going for a two and a half hour ride on your rest day um and then halfway intensive the most intensive one on wednesday then and then probably a less intensive one on thursday and then you can, for example, decide if you on Friday want to have a long endurance-based ride or if you just say it's, let's say, an hour and a half of easy riding because the main focus on that day is on swimming in the morning, then probably the ride, and then the run in the afternoon, and the run gets a focus. 
I mean, every day in a training plan needs to have at least a little bit of focus in there. Um, and then the focus is probably the run. And sometimes, depending on actually where you live, where you are, um, a one and a half hour easy ride, good weather can help to recover a bit better, to warm up, let's say, already for the run. And then you're having the run after. And therefore, the bike session is not really the training session for your, let's say, bike VO2 max, if we want to call it like that, but more to prepare yourself well for the upcoming run in the afternoon, for example. And then, I mean, let's let's describe it in general or continue describing it in general. Then you can continue on Saturday and Sunday again with uh, having two rides. And if you are having an easier ride on Friday, for example, you can again increase the intensity for Saturday and Sunday. Different um, approach would be like in training camp, for example, more or less doing the first two days same um, and then having long endurance-based rides on the next, for example, two or three days in a row coming up on training day three, four, and five. And if the athletes are at home, then I'm normally a fan of having uh, the fixed uh, rest day in your schedule so that you can plan with it. So that you know, I'm going to the physiotherapist on my rest day. I'm having two, three appointments with media and sponsors. Uh, um, whatever, whatever you do, I'm, I'm, I'm pre-cooking for the rest of the week, for example, on my rest day. When they are on training camp, then I only think in three, four or five day blocks of training. So then there's no fixed rest day on Mondays, for example, but you're having, depending on how well performing uh, uh, how how good their performance capacity already is that they are having three probably at the beginning uh, days uh, blocks and then four or five days blocks and if you have a five day block i mean then it's slightly or mid intensive uh, on the first day let's say high intensive or the the main intensive ride on the second day and then probably some strength endurance on the third day and endurance based rides on your fourth and fifth day for example Hmm. A couple of follow-up questions. Uh, or first of all, yes, let's let's split this into. Let's do. <laughs> I have time until twelve o'clock, so one o'clock your time. So we have another forty-three minutes. So let's let's keep going, answer as many questions as we can. Um, but yes, a follow-up question on the rest day. So would you say is an hour easy riding? Is that the maximum that you would do on a rest day? Or are some athletes they want to do like two hours easy riding? Or do which you, is do totally you... fine. I mean, as long as the rule is kept that you need to feel better uh, on your next morning, um, then everything is fine. And honestly concerning bike rides um, I, I absolutely do not worry you can also do a two and a half hour ride or a three hour ride if you fuel yourself well if you restore your carbohydrates for example and everything and if the weather is great because it's whatever a sunny ride at 20 degrees so nothing to risk there concerning illnesses and everything then i'm absolutely not worried I would be worried if the athlete would ask me if he could run on a on a rest day, yes or no. And I don't care if it's a 20 minutes easy run or an hour easy run. I would also be worried at the 20 minutes run because I always think that running due to the impact you have of uh, of accelerating your own body weight 
and uh, and 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 that from step to step can never be a recovery workout. There's always impact in there, biomechanical wise, physical wise. And therefore, I wouldn't see it as a recovery activity. And therefore, whatever you want to do on your ride, feel free to do it uh, as long as you feel better the next day after. But don't go for a run. Okay, makes sense. And uh, then second, secondly, so can you discuss uh, how you choose which intensity is a bit to work on within swimming and cycling? So um, yeah, when, when do you work on high intensity in swimming threshold and and in the bike how do you choose between uh something like zone two uh threshold strength endurance those, those sorts of things yeah i mean in the end it's all about the different physiological profiles you have in all three disciplines and then if you see your physiological profile and in swimming for example more or less like in running it depends on your vo2 max probably on your anaerobic metabolism and also on your, let's call it economy. Yeah. Whatever that means in swimming, whatever that means in running. Completely different, sure, and definitely different, uh, tools you need in training to get a better economy in swimming than in running. So you won't do whatever max strength training for your shoulders to increase your swimming economy, probably. Um, uh, different to maybe doing squats in running. Um, but in the end, Every discipline has has uh, its physiological profile, and then you need to find out which discipline has its main potential in which physiological parameter. Is it in cycling? Is your anaerobic threshold or your FTP, however we want to call it, your maximum lactate steady state, uh, at... Let's do 330 watts by 65 kilograms. Is it limited due to what? Is it your missing VO2 max because it's only 75 and not 85 or 95, for example? Or is it due to your too high anaerobic metabolism? And you can ask the same questions for running and for swimming. And in the end, I mean, the athletes are not machines. They won't adapt for every parameter in the same way. So the question is how to find out which works better example in running probably running economy increasing i mean we had that let's do a different example vo2 max in biking you'll find out that the vo2 max is too low and that's your main potential you have to increase the endurance capacity of the athlete then the only thing you need to do is to find out What works best for increasing your VO2 max? Is it high intensity? Is it threshold intensity? Is it zone two? Is it just volume in endurance-based uh, intensity? We can skip the last one. That doesn't work. So we definitely need intensity. And then it's always a distribution about intensity and volume and how high you want to have the intensity and how often you want to have this intensity. And I'm a fan of, like I said, for also the running, for example, and in... In riding, I'll definitely put the fourth intensity zone up on the threshold zone. So there's definitely a high intensive zone I'm using regularly because in cycling, it has way less to do with risking any injuries because you won't have the impact of a 400 meter run on your track uh, when you are doing high intensity rides on your bike so biomechanically it's way easier to do than whatever you could do in high intensity stuff for the run and um yeah and then 
I'm a fan of doing intensities in training in a halfway recovered state. So not like having three endurance-based rides up to four to five hours uh, and then on day four doing the intensities because I th I think, I'm not like I've proven it a lot of times, but um, I think being well recovered helps to adapt. So when you then put the threshold intervals or the high intensity intervals on your, let's say, second or third day of the training block, then I would think that the adaptation or the outcome from it, the physiological outcome will be better when you do it halfway recovered and you still have a good uh, option to, to adapt from it instead of doing it on a very fatigued state. On the other hand, uh, let's get away from the VO2 max, but if your anaerobic system or let's say the metabolism, which uses carbohydrates to produce energy, you can't produce it, but to convert it into the energy you need for running and cycling and swimming is pretty high and you probably want to lower it, which means you are uh, aiming for your body using less carbohydrates and therefore more fats for performing, then I would think that day four and five specifically in such a training block are getting a pretty high priority because we are already talking about the fact that your glycogen stores, for example, will definitely be slightly depleted on day four or five because at some point you can't restore them every day by 100%. You can't train six, seven hours and be 100% sure that next day they are still on 100% level. And therefore, for, for example, lowering anaerobic metabolism, it could definitely uh, be helpful to do them not on day one, two, three, but probably on day four or five, because you've already done some pre-work while having intensity in your rides, for example, and therefore start your trainings with lower glycogen levels, for example, and then having a better adaptation to your anaerobic metabolism. Do you ever do that intentionally, uh, not just as the part of how, not just as a sequence of the training block, but but actually um, having an let's say an intense ride with limited carbohydrate intake, and then doing a ride the next morning fasted? Is that something you ever do? I did that pretty often years ago um, when I uh, coached athletes with just a normal amount of training hours available per week. So if we would talk about a triathlete who wants to do a long-distance race, for example, and uh, has, let's say, 10 hours per week, two hours on every training day, two rest days, just very general, then I would definitely consider it, or that's what I did, um, and pretty often that, for example, on Wednesday evening, there was an intensive ride for one and a half hours. Next morning, it was an easy ride, but with uh, yeah pre-breakfast, for example, so that the glycogen stores are already halfway depleted. And then, then I definitely did it. Now, not a single session. So I don't know when I last time wrote down that I want to have a low-carb ride or low-carb run or whatsoever uh, in professional triathlon because... When you are training 35 hours per week, it unwillingly develops that at some point you are training with low glycogen stores halfway. Whether it's 
uh, on your fourth or fifth day in a row, whether it's the third workout on that day. I mean, if you're having a swim session in the mornings, you're swimming 5Ks, then having breakfast, you hopefully had a snack in the morning before swimming, and then huge breakfast, and then you go for a four and a half hour ride, having lunch then, a nap, and then go for a run, that glycogen stores won't ever be at 100%. I'm highly sure that that doesn't happen. And therefore, nearly every run in the afternoon has to do with, let's say, at least not full glycogen stores, wherever they are. I mean, nobody knows, as we sadly can't measure them. Whenever there's a measuring technique, I will be the first one to use it, um, except biopsies in training that doesn't make sense i mean that that definitely lowers your training hours available um so therefore um always depending on the training hours you have per week in cycling i would definitely use it more often because it's more direct and the risk is not high um especially because you're not running and therefore have you do not have any running impact so there's also no risk of uh let's say a limited energy availability for example and therefore a potential state of risking injuries due to missing energy availability and therefore bone density, for example. In cycling, I would definitely use it more often, but for pro triathlon, not a single session this year, for example. Mm. Uh, and on to a different uh, topic and question, how do you approach tapering for races? That's a good question, because um, honestly, I... I haven't yet a hundred percent fixed way how to do it because depending on travel time, jet lag, circumstances at the race venue, for example, media appointments, uh, then the schedule itself. Let's do an example. If you are racing the PTO race in Ibiza as a woman, and you had the World Championships in Nice exactly the week before, then tapering will look different than you could when you prepare it without having a race, for example, before. So therefore, it's different. It's individual, the classical university answer. Um, and with more and more time, honestly, in pro triathlon, I'm getting more and more a fan of not lowering volume and intensity too much ahead of the race. So sure, there has to be a point where you can say that all your work and training needs to now have time to adapt and your body needs to recover until we do the activation again. So, I mean, the, the main keys of tapering, recover, activate. Or adapt and activate, probably. Um, but I'm more and more a fan of uh, finding a way where they do have a chance to recover pretty well, probably still at home and not having this training until Friday. The flight is going on Sunday. Um, but already be at least a little bit recovered on the, let's say, two last days at home. So training there, but not the big training days. And then um, staying into the training rhythm is a thing I think it's pretty important because just just my my thought about it is that if you're a pro triathlete, you're used to the training and you can deal with 15 hours of training a week. And 15 hours is more 
like uh, depending on how you do it, but more like active recovery compared to your 35 hours uh, training weeks. And therefore, I think it totally makes sense to stay into the rhythm, to keep the metabolism running, to keep the energy expenditure high, uh, to minimum twice a day, uh, get your whole respiratory system running for minimum an hour per session. Uh, and therefore, I would say that a normal week leading up to race day on Saturday or Sunday wouldn't look like a typical taper taper week for someone outstanding looking on it um always fixed is still a day let's say two or three days ahead of the race which is really really relaxing probably only the whatever 45 minutes easy riding jumping into the water going one and a half case easy and then the activation the day after probably two days of activating um so whatever still the halfway intensive ride for one and a half hours and the brick run for 30 minutes after and then going into the race what what day so the act activation day that you described there is that the day before the race the two, two days before the race yeah so normally it's just one day as as i think it's halfway enough but it depends mm -hmm. a little bit how relaxing the the last rest day let's say or active recovery day was and then it also depends a lot on for example your how your media schedule looks like i mean if we are for example uh, having a tapering phase ahead of the kona race uh, then you'll always have to consider that whatever you have press conferences you have briefings you have media appointments which has to do with a lot of cognitive work also probably a lot of walking from venue one to two to three And then also a lot of whatever, standing around, sitting around and this and that. And sometimes maybe it makes more sense to have two days of activating again. But then the first day can be just a normal two and a half hour ride, just a normal whatever, a 3K swim, just a normal training day like you would do on every start of a training day, uh, a training block after a rest day. So the first day of training, like I said before, is never the day with the most intensity in there, but a day where you do a little bit of everything. So swim, bike and run normally, uh, but none of these has to do with high intensity, for example, a bit of zone two work, maybe a bit of threshold work, but not like the main sessions when it comes to intensity and like that. And then probably the day before. And when I talk about activation, I would say that um, what you definitely want to have is the whole metabolism running, the whole respiratory system running. So you need intensity on the day before, which goes to the whole claviature of intensities, not like high intensity, but there will definitely be some threshold intervals uh, in that session on the day before the race. You will probably do, let's say, three times, three minutes at threshold intensity, going half an hour easy, and then be back at home, running shoes on, half an hour of running, also in there, two times, let's say, five to six minutes of race pace, for example, in there, And then the activation is over. Got it. And uh, heat preparation, uh, what is your approach to, to that? For We have a lot of hot races these days, so uh, it's becoming more and more a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the good thing is, the more often you'll have them, the easier you get used to it. Um, it's different for being in mid of Europe, being the white skinny uh, color type, uh, not skinny, white skin 
uh, type of person and then you'll need to go to whatever las vegas for example and you're competing at 45 degrees um and i think the more often you'll have them the better it is and main approach of it would be be there early enough so that's what i always say when it comes i mean we had that the classic one like the kona preparation um where it's halfway hot but mainly humid um and honestly i would always recommend being there minimum let's say 10 to 12 days earlier plus spending time in your last training camp somewhere in heat conditions minimum so like we did it the last years training camp in texas in the woodlands for example where it's already very hot and then hopping over to kona uh not having the big jet lag problems because it's only like i don't know four or five hours probably something like that time difference or time gap um and then you are already used to the heat and the only thing you need now to do in the next 10 days is mainly to adapt to the humidity and then it's going okay but honestly i'm never using any kind of hot uh, hot water emergencies uh or any type of training in the sauna or something cuz i always think that you will never manage to really 100% fit the conditions you'll have on your race location so i mean if you're in kona then again hot and humid sure in your sauna it's hot and humid but you won't have the impact of the sun for example which is extremely important to stay in on the sunny side of life in training uh, whether it's on the canarian islands or even if you have hot summer in whatever germany for example um, then it's still better than just staying indoor without having the, the the impact of the sun and then get your first sunburn on on race day for example that sh is definitely a thing i i would avoid mm. uh and do you ever use uh things like overdressed treadmill or indoor cycling uh, to get the temperature up for an hour nope never to be honest never i mean we are talking and again probably the luxury situation of training pro athletes who by now are on fuerteventura at in 30 degrees for example so they are used to heat conditions from january february on and then they will stay on mallorca or in texas and this and that so therefore they are spending way more time in the heat than they are spending at their home in mid-europe where i'm sadly need to sit now at six degrees and rain for example so therefore i'm absolutely not worried about the heat um what i would have a, uh, an eye on is that whenever they are in at their ra race venue for example like kona again that you bring a little bit of sense in there how often and how long they stay in the heat and in the humid conditions so probably training at first more in the early mornings where it's not that hot and humid or in the afternoons probably and then more and more get used to training in the conditions you will have on race day and that means mid of the day hottest time most humid time and you'll have to run your marathon at whatever 330 pace for example and i think best case is just to just to do it 
and just to get uh yeah uh, get a good feeling and a good uh, familiarization of the conditions you'll have on your race location right yep and uh A couple of uh, general coaching questions. First, can you give an example of a training or performance-related question that you've been thinking about recently and trying to to understand better or optimize in some way? So, for my own, you mean? Yeah, yeah, oh, for 100%. you, hundred uh, percent, tons of. Um, as I'm always a big fan, that uh, I mean, it's sports science or training science, and it's still there's still a lot of development in there. Um, And what I often discuss is, for example, um, or in general first, how fluid certain metrics are while competing out there. Let's take the simplest one. I mean, it's easy to measure your heart rate and see how your heart rate is going while having a race. And you can also do it compared to your power output, for example. So far, so fine. You can now easily measure your, for example, sweat rates or body core temperature, and you could measure it for eight hours, and you can have time on your x-axis, body core temperature on your y-axis, and then see if there's any difference in there, if, for example, your body temperature is higher while running compared to cycling whatsoever. Absolutely great. Makes totally sense. And then there are hundreds of metrics. I would like to know how they develop over time, but I there's a lack of, for example, measuring techniques so far, and therefore I can't. Let's take probably lactate values, but honestly, I think it's a pretty boring one, to be honest, because I think in long-distance triathlon, it won't be a limiting factor. So you will always find concentrations that are pretty low. You will never uh, have any concentrations up of, let's say, four, five millimoles or something. But lactate values, for example, would definitely be a thing if I would be in professional cycling to, to have an eye on. But then, and we discussed it uh, before, is... um How well equipped are your glycogen stores? We do not have a single clue about when we talk about low carb training, like we said it before, the pre-breakfast ride, for example, or uh, the fasted state after an intensive session on Wednesday and then the session on Thursday morning where I say, do it please in a low carb state without having a single clue if your glycogen stores are full up to, let's say, 50%. 60%, 70%, or 80%, or 30%, I don't know. Uh, and the next question after it would be if the adaptation to the storage percentages of your glycogen stores make a difference, whether they are a little bit more full or a bit, little bit less full, for example. Is the adaptation different to the pre-breakfast ride when you have 70% of your glycogen stores compared to 35% of your glycogen stores? We do not know. And therefore, there would be a thing where I'm really into it. Um, a lot of carbohydrate stores, carbohydrate oxidation rates is the next thing. We are discussing whether 90 versus 120 grams per hour is better. But nearly none of us knows how it is for the individual athlete and how the oxidation rate, so the carbohydrates you really not only eat without getting uh, gut issues, for example, but you really oxidate, 
are looking like. And therefore, tons of questions. <laughs> we can have an own uh, podcast episode about it, about the future of sports science. Not that I know that, but just that I would throw in uh, some questions I would really like to know because um, we are definitely it, it it feels like we're not even in the middle so therefore I think there's still a lot of work to do and stuff to get to know um, so that we can make it even more scientific yeah absolutely and uh, is there something within uh, triathlon or training that uh, training lore triathlon lore that annoys you for example you read social media posts where people recommend doing xyz and uh, and you just want to tear your hair out <laughs> <laughs> um honestly i uh i'm not the i'm not the one scrolling through social media or even if then it doesn't have to do with triathlon normally because there needs to be a time in life that hasn't to do with uh, swim bike and run but i absolutely know what you mean and um i think the The long run discussion, for example, I had that before, is a thing which I contextual do not get. So why are we discussing the duration of a single uh, workout or single run? And then I often have the feeling, especially when it comes to long runs, that it's some kind of philosophy war I'm into. So the uh, some are saying that it's 30Ks, where, I'm, where I always say that it's just the typical two-hour run for Patrick, for example, and even an easy one, for example. Um, on the other hand, there are people talking about three hours and two and a half, and you need to do this too. And this is something I do not really get why a single session, and I'm always asking the, the question, what physiologically, mentally, biomechanically, whatever, whatever you want to have, um, happens within this session which is so essentially important that you can't skip it and i do not really get a satisfying answer on this to be honest um i mean i'm i, I know why training volume makes sense but then we are talking about consistency of volume per block per day per week per whatever training period i don't know but not from a single session same is um I often have the feeling that we are, especially in, in long distance triathlon, doing it a little bit too heroic when we talk about our training volumes and when thinking about that the next one and the next one needs to even train more and longer and with high intensity and 50% of your training time in the sauna, indoor and this and that. And this is something which I do often not get because I think we are not the best examples then for age group athletes, for young people who want to get into triathlon, for example, because if you want to make clear that your seven and a half hour ride plus your two hour brick run is what you need to do in pro triathlon, yeah, I'm sorry, but I've never seen one of the good guys doing it. So I've never seen Jan Frodeno riding seven and a half hours and doing a two hour long run as a brick run after it. Um, cause I think that does not really make sense. And, and therefore, if, if we point that out as something heroic, you'll, you'll have to do on, want to get applause on it on, on Strava. Ah, maybe I'm too old for that or something. I don't know, but that does not really make sense to me. And therefore, um, I'm always a fan of, let's put it the other way around. It probably not annoys me, but I'm, I'm a fan of 
sometimes making triathlon not too complicated and you do not need to be the one with the most training volume you do not need to be the one with the sevens or eights or fourth gadget you're using in training for example because in the end it's about basic work in swim bike run and probably the off-bike training and that's it and you can also do it with your whatever two grand's bike you bought on ebay for example and you can still be a fantastic triathlete and be successful even um, in your whatever age group for example and therefore don't make it too complicated uh, do not look on strava what the others are doing because there are only the sessions online in my opinion that need to be online on strava especially for the ones who are complaining to make it very special in training and um, yeah let's let's take it all a little bit easier but focus on the basic stuff we need to do right yeah that's a, that's a fantastic answer and I, I can vouch for that from personal experience about strava for example i i was never a big strava user but i did have i do have a strava account and my training was connected and then one day i I decided that I'm going to stop. I completely stopped uploading anything to Strava. I don't have any sessions yeah. there for probably three years. And it did, in some small way, it did change my mentality to training. Like it, it wasn't, I didn't have to, you know, run those extra 10 seconds per kilometer or bike yeah. those extra 15, 20 watts. And I think it, it made my training a lot better, frankly, even if I never thought that it affected me directly, but, but yeah. probably subconsciously it, it still did and uh, especially if you're um yeah but but i at the same time i think that that's maybe one reason that we have those hero days is that actually it does potentially give you followers on social media and it got, does give some interesting sponsor uh exposure right. sponsor content so so it would be interesting to hypothetically think about what would how would training change if social media did not did not good, exist good point and i mean it's it's always the same you will always find someone on strava who trained more on that day uh, compared to yourself and you will always find someone on instagram who looks more beautiful or whose training looks more easier or whose successes are bigger than yours and uh, like you said some subconsciousness um it will definitely impact you even if you do not want to have it or even if you do not think it really works so i very often too often said to athletes stop being on social media delete your strava account or do not look into it because every second or third day the comments were like well have you seen this and that ride of this guy on strava and i'm always like no because uh, because i absolutely do not care and if you hear that on every second or third day even if your coached athlete says well i'm not really into it but have you seen the right then you 100 percent can be safe it affects him if he knows it or not probably a question but it will definitely affect him and he will ask himself or herself she will ask herself why uh, she just did a four hour right while others probably competing in the same race or on the same pto tour or whatsoever had a seven hour ride and in the end I think you'll have to have a strong self-confidence, for example, to really be on Strava saying, well, you little lads, do whatever you want in training. In the end, I'm the one being up on the podium, whereas you guys, you Strava heroes, won't be. And I won't find, I think you won't find too many athletes with that attitude and being that self-confident. And therefore, yeah, just skip it. I mean, and Strava is a nice tool. I have an account on my own. 
and I have like, I w watched it yesterday by accident, 120 requests actually. So nearly as much requests than I have followers because I'm never on there. I do not even understand how I can follow people. But sometimes you are on training camp, you want to check comms, for example, just for fun and probably want to hunt them makes sense still okay and then if fabian cancellara is the one who has the com you can also be fine with it that it's fabian cancellara who owns it and not yourself so therefore all okay but it should be just for the fun and it shouldn't be something where you compare others um probably also to yourself from day to day so therefore just uh yeah uh, keep it down a little bit yeah so um I, I will have to metaphorically run to the next meeting in nine minutes so let's uh take four minutes to discuss about your wind tunnel project what's coming up when is it launching uh and you decide what to do with those four minutes and then we do some quick listener questions yeah we do it um in a in a second or third episode probably and then we talk about all aerodynamical gains you can have um with your position with your pos with your bike and everything maybe the main point to point out and i'm doing it not in the same arrow way the others are doing it probably but um the whole your whole position you and your machine is a big thing in triathlon you can lose a lot of time by not having a good position and you can gain a lot of minutes by having a really really good position and the good stuff about it, and that's my keynote on this in these four minutes, is everyone should think of his position not first from an aerodynamical position, but more from a comfort and biomechanical perspective, probably. Are you having any issues with your position? Are you really sitting stable on your bike? Do you have any whatever issues uh skin wise do you have any issues that you have sleeping hands sleeping feet whatsoever or neck stiffness after being in aero position and if so get yourself a good bike fitting probably get yourself a good physiotherapist and in the end if you've finished or started that journey then you can probably come to the wind tunnel because we'll find a lot of what's to save um, but first things first, like I said, do the basic stuff right first. And that's the same with the wind tunnel. I won't be the one pointing out that the wind tunnel is a must have for everyone. First of all, do the basic stuff right. Have fun while riding without having any issues. And then consider if you want to save some minutes because of, um, an, an probable error optimization from you and your position in your bike. Why did you decide to to build an actual wind tunnel? I mean, it, it's pretty unique because uh, other wind tunnels existing are maybe uni big universities or like automotive automotive industry with massive massive uh, budgets and uh, completely different scale than uh, an endurance coaching business. So yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely right. But um, if I see the numbers of bike fittings we are doing per year, it's already pretty high. And then what we did so far is already doing aero testings in the velodrome. And we did that in, for example, in Germany, but also in Los Angeles, in Italy, in Valencia, in Spain, and I don't know, on 10, 15 different velodromes so far um, with a lot of professional athletes mainly because it's not easy to get an appointment on a velodrome because it's like in Germany, it's normally in public hands. So it's always complicated to get a day in the velodrome. And therefore, we made it more or less exclusive for professional athletes. But what we definitely see is that there is a 
sure, a niche market for also age group athletes who want to put some effort into their positions, for example, and who wants who want to be faster by optimizing their hour position. And therefore, we thought it's probably a good idea to build a wind tunnel, um, which is also open to the public and is, in my opinion, the or as far as I know, the the, the only uh, wind tunnel in mid-Europe where you can book an appointment uh, on the internet um, and, yeah, um, start your journey to your better aerodynamical position. And hopefully there's a market. I mean, we'll see. Just by building it, the, um, I, I can't be 100% sure that the market will definitely be there. Yeah, well, no, that, that that makes some sense. And uh, yeah, final question on that: If you have one generic tip for aerodynamics, what what would you say? Uh, get yourself a stable position first, because every movement you have on your saddle will even get higher the more fatigued you are. So while in a race, for example. And the less you move, the more stable you are, and especially the more relaxed you are. For example, in your shoulders the more potential you have in your CDA values, so your aerodynamic values in the end. And therefore, don't think of tires, wheels, drinking systems, or 3D-printed cockpits, for example, at first. These are points 17, 21, and 25, probably. But first of all, stable, comfortable, relaxing position where you'll have a lot of potential to adapt to get better aero values. Yeah. So let's say, uh, let's take um, one or two listener questions here. First, uh, this one is from Oscar. He asked this for another guest as well, but we'll, I'll ask this one from you. Do you think there are differences in, in optimal training for women and men on average? Sure. 100%. I mean, if you just see the normal cycle and if you would that, include that one into training then you'll have the answer for that there's definitely a difference in the average training yeah i would say yes and uh from neil two questions uh, do you consider vla max a physiologically valid and practically useful concept i would say if you test the vla max right and if you have testings and retestings so that you see the development also of the raw data and everything and know what you've done in training then you can link the outcome in the testing and the training and then it makes sense but i would not say i mean I, and the same answer would be for vo2 max by the way vo2 max testings mm. in running can make sense but also doesn't if you do not have a clue how you got there and what your running economy for example is so therefore i think the uh specific look on just one metric is always a bit limited um, but the vla max can be a very very valuable parameter within a physiological profile for example of an athlete and uh what is final que listener question uh, what is the rationale of using longer than typical rests between sweet spot slash ftp intervals uh, i actually don't know if you've talked about this maybe on some other podcast because i i don't think we talked about this in our last interview so i don't know what the rests typically are but this is the question and the, you mean the rest uh so between intervals rest? yeah yeah I mean, depends on what you want to have. You, if you, if you want to have a higher metabolical impact, then you can short the rest between your high intensity sessions and start the next sessions with like eight millimoles 
of lactate in your blood, for example, that could also make sense. But I'm always a fan of uh, making it halfway long. And then it often is a thing about topography and whatever your course, your training on and everything. So I would say um, the more intensive is, uh, um, it is, the longer the, the resting time can be. But it's also a thing. I mean, if the next traffic light is in three minutes, then uh, do the next traffic light and start your next interval again, even if there were six minutes uh, on the plan, and then it's totally fine. I mean, resting times between intervals, if it's halfway okay, it's not a big thing to to consider whether it's like four or six minutes, for example. So take it however it, it comes and, and makes halfway sense to deal with the effort, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I want to add something from my personal perspective here because this is something that I I have been thinking about quite a bit. But but I think that it's much more common that people take too short rests yeah. than too long rests. And uh, and I think at the end of the day, it's more important the, the total amount of work you do than the the work to rest ratio and doing things on a really short turnaround. Um, okay, final final question. So instead of instead of rapid fire questions, uh, I, I'm going to ask guests to pick their podiums for the Olympics this year. So okay. pick the gold, silver, and bronze for uh, the men and women in the Olympics. Wow. Um, honestly, I'm not into all these guys and girls about their actual training and everything. Um, but if I would need to pick three, I'll say UK is winning both. Um, Alex Yi and Beth Potter on one. Um, and you can now tell me that Beth Potter is injured. And then I'm, I'm outing myself as someone who's not following the Olympic distance, uh, as intensive as I do for mid and long distance. Um, second at the man's field will be Christian Blumfeld. Um, so they having the, the turnaround from the, from the last Olympics. And then third, Probably let's keep the German flag high. Tim Helwig, absolutely surprising on, on the race day of the Olympics, becoming third. So therefore, I'll having Alex Yee, Christian Blumfeld, and Tim Helwig, uh, one, two, three at the men's field, and uh, Beth Potter. Uh, oh, God, God, by the uh, Cassandra uh, on the second, I would say. And third, again, German flag, Laura Lindemann, especially because I would mm. uh, love her, her and also her coach, Dan, uh, seeing uh, on the podium at the Olympics. That would be great. So therefore, Beth, Cassandra, Laura. On no, Olympics. I didn't know. I didn't know that Don co uh, coaches Laura. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. therefore she, she, I, as far as I can, uh, see that sometimes on social media, she's in halfway good sh or in good shape. Um, and on, on a very good way to the Olympics. So there will be a massive thing also for German triathlon. So therefore, Laura and Tim on three. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my picks as well, and then I'm gonna make a spreadsheet with with my picks and all the yeah. guests, and we can we can track that leading up to the Olympics. But um, yeah, I I'm going on the men's side. I'm going Alex Yi as well, and uh, I'm going Dorian Konings, uh, Vasco Vilasa uh, second and third. Um, yeah, a bit of 
rooting for the homeboy there with living in Portugal. And but I think Vasco has proven himself to be yeah. uh, be very capable of, of meddling. On the women's side, uh, Beth Potter, I agree. Cassandra Bogrand, and I'm going Emma Lombardi. I'm a big fan of Emma Lombardi and the okay. way she races. So Good. I think that that's, those are my picks. And and three French on the podium, I think the French will be really strong. And it's more oh, a question yeah. of, on the men's side, it's almost, I knew that I wanted one French guy on the podium, but I wasn't sure who, but I'm going Dorian. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Good picks. All right. Thank well, thank you. you so much so much for this Bjorn we uh yeah we gotta run I gotta run but uh yeah it was great to have this chat really appreciate it and uh let's do it again another time thanks for having me thanks everyone for listening bye-bye I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Uh, it was uh, a really great chat from my perspective. And uh, if I hadn't had uh, another meeting coming up, then we could probably have kept talking for uh, quite a long time. Still, I had I at least had lots of questions uh, still on my on my questions sheet. Uh, so hopefully we can get to them in a future interview. But as always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, be sure to also check out episode 291, which was the first time I interviewed Bjorn back in 2021, where we go specifically into topics like swim, bike and run training. And Bjorn gives uh, a systematic overview of his methodology within each and within triathlon as a whole and lots, lots more. So that's well worth a listen. Now, let me just share some of my personal takeaways from this interview. And uh, the first one is about patience and acceptance when you have setbacks like illness, injury, and so on. Uh, so something that we discussed earlier in the interview. Uh, this is one of the easiest things to say and one of the hardest things to do, I feel, in endurance sports because we all want to be out there training. And when we're not, we want to get back there as quickly as humanly possible. Uh, so one thing that I found works well to avoid that trap of impatience and making mistakes related to to impatience to getting back to quickly is to fill the time that you would normally spend training with some other thing that you feel is a genuine positive and a genuine pleasure in your life so maybe it's studying a topic that you wanted to dive into but you haven't had time for or maybe it's focusing more on your friends and your social life maybe it's uh, playing a musical instrument or spending more time in nature uh, but i think that uh, any of these can work or many other things of course but the, the mistake that i've made for sure is to use the time that i couldn't train for whatever reason to just do more work instead uh, or even just more life admin and i don't think that that's good in any way because it it can get you feeling very low when you're used to having that training as a as a bit of a, a personal personal time away from the normal uh the normal day-to-day -day. and when you use that time for something else that that is different that you really like but you normally don't do because you normally choose to spend most of your free time beside work and family obligations on training then that puts you in a much more happier and more patient mental state in in my experience so rather than spending extra time working for example spend that extra time uh, playing the guitar or whatever it might be that brings you some some joy in your life so that's that's my first takeaway and uh, or continued point on on one of the things that Bjorn discussed then the second point is about run training. So here uh, the focus is clearly on superb consistency and minimizing risks and relatively frequent exposure to moderately fast running. Uh, but but if you look into any individual session, they all seem to look quite modest, uh, not really being too too hard or too challenging. So those were some of the key aspects that Bjorn talked about in how he designs the run training. Uh, and uh, then my 
takeaway or how, how I think about that is that this is a great example of how with within triathlon you can't just consider the three disciplines in a vacuum but you have to think about interactions and my interpretation here is that uh, Bjorn uses a pretty high volume of cycling to build up great general cardiovascular and metabolic fitness and then uh, a lot of that carries over into running uh, in terms of general fitness and and then for the running component itself he can be quite focused on running economy which doesn't seem to need a big total running load uh, or big loads within individual sessions but it's more about uh, a good kind of specific load relatively frequently so that, that is all my interpretation of uh, of Bjorn's training and Bjorn's and and the physiology in general based on the discussion we had but um, yeah I think I find it very interesting and and definitely um, yeah a bit different to to how maybe how I do things and how how you hear a lot of people doing things but super interesting and definitely something that that I would uh, like to experiment with and um, the final takeaway that I have is uh, there is no one size fits all because for almost everything we talked about you can find examples of successful athletes and coaches doing almost the exact opposite well not quite or the big things are all the same uh, which is consistency not getting injured not getting ill so focusing on risk minimization those are all things that are actually very much uh, the same across the board but in terms of more nuanced things and detailed things within the training that's where you can find examples of uh, from from one extreme to the other almost so for example you find athletes doing really well on high running volume and keeping most sessions really really easy with one to two sessions of quite high load that try to quote unquote move the needle uh, which would be kind of the opposite of what uh, we discussed here with Bjorn and my previous takeaway uh, and as far as general advice goes uh, that's probably something that I've said uh, on this podcast several times uh, because that's something that i generally kind of try to do in my coaching uh, so basically advising to keep the easy sessions easy the hard sessions hard and and i know that there have been other guests on that have said similar things as well but uh yeah the the summary or the takeaway here is that that this goes to the main objective of this podcast is to show all of these different ways that there exist to achieve success and demonstrate that there is no one right answer and i think that this interview really did that so it's not that uh, anything that Bjorn is saying or doing is very unconventional or anything like that but just in the details in the smaller details there are differences compared to what you might have heard before and that's not to say that this is the new uh, best thing or that the other things are wrong or the or the opposite of that but it's just to show that uh, that there are many roads that lead to Rome within within triathlon and uh I asked Bjorn the question about if there's anything that frustrates him in the zeitgeist of triathlon and and if I were personally to answer that question it would probably be the tendency that you have to choose sides you have to pick A versus B and uh, even uh, letting this be part of your identity or your um your brand and and not allowing yourself to change opinions uh, or blasting people that that do change opinions so so this is uh, so to sum up this takeaway i would say that we shouldn't let our identities as athletes or as coaches be tied to any method or strategy or tactic whatever you want to call it because then you just put yourself in a really small box and you might not be able to benefit from the different ways of approaching things that you come across for example some of the the things that Bjorn talked about here might be quite new to some people and certainly for me there are some things that i haven't uh, 
used that much in my coaching and that i am now super interested in maybe maybe experimenting with a bit but but if you yeah if you strongly identify with any given training method or tactic then you'll be much less receptive to these new ideas and inputs so so i think that being curious and open-minded and and even being open to changing your mind about things uh, uh that those are all really important things but that kind of uh, the trend is almost the opposite that we have to have strong stances on on everything so i think that that's something that uh, yeah that, that that we should be careful not to fall into that that trap uh and then the final point here uh related to the interview is the olympic picks that we did podium picks uh i'll i have put up a google sheet with uh, uh bjorn's and mine uh, picks and uh, and i will do that for all the guests that we get on in the future that i will ask this question for so that will be a a fun uh little build build up or lead up to the olympics and uh, we can follow along and then we can see after the olympics who did who did the best and maybe uh yeah maybe maybe there is some fun reward for the person that that wins or a picks does the best picks uh but anyway i'll put the link to that google sheet in the show notes so that you can you can check and i will be updating that google sheet uh whenever we have a new uh, a new response uh and uh yeah so then i'll put it in the put it in all of the episode descriptions episode show notes for future episodes so that you can always follow along and see who has uh who has picked who and maybe you you can keep your own picks uh in your own mind or or, or in a document and and see how how you do uh against the expert guests of the podcast and uh, then a final piece of uh, housekeeping is that uh, as i talked about in the last episode we now have a new coach on scientific travel on the scientific triathlon team who is uh, uh, onboarded and taking on clients uh, i want to just very briefly discuss the the recruitment process so we had 29 candidates selected for the first round of interviews and many many more applications than that uh, so of course, when you have 29 candidates that were as good as they were being selected for interviews, then that means that I got to talk to a lot of absolutely fantastic coaches with lots of experience and knowledge, uh, including experience from the very highest level of the sport. So it was frankly a very luxurious position to be in having so many uh, amazing candidates to choose from. But uh, in the end, and it was a very hard choice, I have to say, but in the end, uh, the coach that, that uh, is now part of the scientific triathlon team is uh, Tobias Toby Haumann from Germany. Uh, he has been coaching since uh, 2010 and has worked with athletes uh, from beginners to professional athletes, has raced triathlon himself from, from the draft legal Bundesliga first division races to Ironman and ultra running ultra marathon races and uh, has all the skills and characteristics especially that we want in a coach here at scientific triathlon so as i said he's already taking on athletes uh, so check out our coaching page and toby's profile on scientifictriathlon.com to learn more and contact us if you are looking for a coach and maybe toby will be a good fit for you uh, next episode, I interview uh, Rune Talsnes, Dr. R Dr. Rune Talsnes, and we discuss topics like overtraining, periodization research that he has conducted, basically whether it makes sense to progress intensity versus progress volume within uh, a block of uh, general preparation. Uh, we discuss uh, best practices within cross-country skiing because uh, Rune's specialty is within cross-country skiing. And we have a bunch of listener questions as well, which I will keep... Uh, 
putting out requests for uh, as much as I can remember for most interviews that I do anyway. So uh, follow follow us on Scientific Triathlon HQ on Instagram. That's normally where I put out those requests for questions in the stories. And uh, so yeah, if you follow follow along there, you'll get the chance to ask questions for for upcoming interviews. But anyway, the the interview with Rune is already recorded. Uh, it was a very good one, and that will be out. Um, I'm not sure actually maybe in two weeks or maybe in one week uh, depending on when I get time to edit it uh, so so let's see but that's the next one uh, in the lineup uh, finally big thanks to our sponsors Precision Fuel and Hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com if you're looking for high quality practical and tasty fueling and hydration products make sure that you try Precision Fuel and Hydration there are a range of options from drink mix to gels to choose so you can easily find your personal favorite don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS24 and thank you to Zen8 the Zen8 swim trainer is a great tool to have in your toolbox to improve your technique and power and to target specific aspects of your stroke and to maintain consistency when you don't have time to get to the pool. You can try the Zenate risk free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zenatesincredit.com forward slash ETS. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.